0: Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to chapter 20, the 24th chapter of the gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to welcome you to City Light Church if you've never been here. For those who are watching online, if you've never joined us online, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. Um, our mission is, is is quite simple. We exist to shine the light of Christ through the transformed lives of his people. That's our heartbeat, that's our mission, that's our focus. And so we have been thinking and and. And, and looking forward to this day to see all of the faces that we see gather out, out, outside in this beautiful weather and also um, online, obviously, we certainly thank you for joining us as well. In some ways, we feel like this year is a reboot for us because so much has changed in, in the way life is lived. And, and, and so our church is going to be different as we enter and embark in this new season, but not just our church, you're going to be different. And that's, and that's the primary reason why the church is different, because all of us are different. We've changed in the course of this past year. And so in some ways, we see this as a, as a, as a new launch, so to speak. Today, we actually, believe it or not, today we celebrate four years as an as official launch church. We launched... Uh, April the second of 2017, and today we we celebrate four years, and so that's a beautiful celebration, that's a beautiful milestone, that's a beautiful marker. But in some ways, I literally feel like we are starting back over and rebooting fresh. We're moving into a new season. Um, drywall, as we speak, is going up in uh, going up in our building, and, and 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 down on Depot Street, and so um, they they say that'll be finished next week, or actually that'll be finished this week, which means that the finishing touches on the electric work will be happening and all of that kind of stuff, which means within the next three to four weeks, we're probably going to be in a building that's our own, (laughs) that we don't have to break down on Sunday afternoons and and that we don't have to set up on Sunday mornings. And that's different, right? And so we, we literally are changing in so many different ways. And so I do feel like this is a refresh. I do feel like this is a reboot. But I find find comfort in knowing that there is no other place in Scripture I would rather be when I'm talking about a refresh and a reboot than talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me at, again, the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at the 24th chapter. The Gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter. And I'll read the first six verses this morning, or first, first seven for us to get started. It says, verse 36 of chapter 24, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. You know, our text for this morning actually picks up at the end of Luke's account, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is preparing to depart from this world. According to John, uh, the, John chapter 14, verse three, he is going to prepare a place for those who have placed their trust in him, in him as savior and as Lord. And by this point in the story, Jesus has already risen from the grave. His female followers have already visited his grave only to find it empty. And they've already went back and, and, and to tell the 11 disciples who did not believe them. And Peter, needing to see for himself, has already ran to the tomb to see for himself and found it exactly as the sisters had described it. And by this point in the story, Jesus has already appeared to some of his followers, including two who were on their way to a village seven miles outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And according to Scripture, the eyes of these two followers were initially kept from recognizing Christ. And and, and while they didn't recognize him, a, a conversation begins to spark up between the two followers and Jesus, with them not knowing who he was, describing the events that had taken place on that day the death on Good Friday, the the, the anxiousness on Saturday, and then, of course, the news about a resurrection on Sunday. And later, they arrive in the village, this village called Emmaus outside of Jerusalem, and they prepare to share share a meal together. They say, won't you stay with us, stranger, and have a meal with us? And as they begin to break bread, The Bible says their eyes were open to recognize who he was. And and at that moment where they recognized him, he immediately vanished from their sight. And this is where our text this morning picks up in verse 32. Verse 32. Verse 32, it says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread." And verse 36 continues this story with an unexpected dinner meeting, with an unexpected dinner guest that shows up at this dinner meeting. And that guest is the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. It says in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? First take notice that they are now in the presence of the resurrected Christ, the risen Christ, and yet they are still doubting. You can almost hear them in this moment as you read the account. This can't be real can it be real I, I mean how can it be real it, it's impossible this is this is not happening by now you would think that doubt was the only thing that they would consider impossible They've all witnessed, for example, Jesus' miracles, and yet they still doubt in this moment. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him feed thousands of people off of two pieces of fish and five loaves of bread. They've seen him stop storms. They've seen him heal all manner of disease and yet even bringing the dead back to life. They've witnessed all all of this. Jesus told them that this day was coming even and yet they still doubt it. Matthew records at least three times where Jesus tells them that he will rise on the third day. One such time is in the 20th chapter of Matthew where he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. He tells them this. They received the report from the women in the group as they went to tend to the body of Jesus only to find that it was gone. They saw with their own eyes an empty grave. They received a report from the two that were heading to Emmaus when they ran into Jesus. And yet, they doubt. You know, I would like to think that if I spotted Jesus tonight walking on the Mississippi River, maybe I wouldn't doubt him rising from the grave. You know, I would like to think that I've, if, if I handed Jesus a two-piece fish dinner from the local fish shack, shout out to Boston Fish Supreme, and he fed thousands of people with that two-piece fish dinner, I can't even feed my kids off that two-piece. I got to get eight pieces to feed my boys. I would think that if I got a two-piece fish dinner and he fed thousands with that two-piece Boston catfish dinner, I I would say, okay, yeah, he probably did rise. I would like to think that if I took Jesus to the Vicksburg Cemetery after service today and he called back from the dead a recently deceased man or woman and that man or woman answered when he called, that I wouldn't doubt his ability to come back from the grave either. But family, if you think that's the case, it's only because you don't know how doubt actually works in the human heart. You see, doubt doesn't fixate on all the times that God answers. Doubt instead locks in on the possibility that this time he may not. Doubt doesn't fixate on all the times that he tells the truth about himself and his word. Doubt will instead lock in on the possibility that maybe this time he won't. No matter how faithful God's been, no matter how good he's been, no matter how much he's come through to take care of you and take care of me, doubt has a way of creeping in to say to us, yeah, Brian, but that was then. What about now? Here's what's fascinating about this episode, though. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, enters into a room filled with doubt. But the resurrected Christ in that room filled with doubt brings peace and brings grace. First, he brings grace. It's important to understand that even with the audacity that they had to doubt, given all the evidence that they were provided, all the promises that they were given by him, that they were met with grace. The 11 answered his crucifixion with cowardice. Remember that. They denied him. They abandoned him. Even in this very moment, they aren't expecting his return. They're actually locked up and hiding from the authorities in fear of their very lives. But how does Christ deal with them? Does Christ walk into the room with, and return with harsh punishment for Peter for denying him three times? Does Christ walk into the room and return ready to shame Thomas because after all that he said and done, he still doubts him? No, Jesus walks into the room with an abundance of grace to share in the midst of struggling believers. You know, some of us need to hear that because we we need to hear that because we think right now that God wants nothing to do with us because maybe we've allowed our faith to grow shaky during this season. Maybe we've allowed our faith to grow shaky during this season of trial and testing And some of us that are watching on TV, we don't even feel like even turning over anymore to go to church. It takes all the energy in the world just to click the YouTube link, it feels like, and link in. And this season has put a whooping on us. And maybe some of us are saying to ourselves, well, I, I don't even know if the Lord wants to be bothered with me right now. Maybe we've seen him answer time and time again, and yet we still have the audacity to think that maybe he's not listening now. Some of us need to hear this because all we've ever had was doubt. Some of us need to hear this because we've never really trusted in him. And even now he's becoming realer to us, but still the presence of our doubts keeps convincing us that he's just simply too far away to try and approach him. But no matter where you are in your doubts, no matter whether you've always doubted him or no matter whether you're just in a season of doubting him, maybe you're in the shallow waters of doubt, maybe you're in the deep waters of doubt, you may at times feel a great deal of shame and think to yourself, why should I pray? Why would he want to hear from someone like me? But don't underestimate the abundance of his grace towards us. He offers grace to the strugglers and he invites them into his presence so that, so that by faith, their faith may be refreshed and restored. Saints of God, brothers and sisters, don't run from his presence in your doubt. Don't run from his presence as he draws near to you and leans in on you. Don't run from that presence saying, I'm not good enough or I don't have enough faith or I haven't trusted him well enough. No, lean in because that is grace to you. The resurrected Christ brings grace, but the resurrected Christ also brings peace. Now, pay attention to the first words that Jesus offers this bunch. They're scattered, they're scared, they're doubting, they've denied him, they've abandoned him, they've forgotten so much of what he has already told them about himself, and yet his first words are peace to you, peace to you. Not curse, curse, curses to you. Not judgment to you. Peace to you. One pastor theologian captures this moment with these words. He says, "All of them had proved backsliders and cowards, and yet, behold, the return which their master makes to his disciples. Not a word of rebuke spoken." Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly, he appears in the midst of them and begins by speaking of peace. Peace be unto you. He, and, and he closes with this, and I love this. Listen closely. He says, he is far more willing to forgive than men are to be forgiven. And far more ready to pardon than men are to be pardoned. Now, brothers and sisters, even when we don't think we can be forgiven, God stands ready to forgive. So Christ, with much grace and much peace, bears with his brothers and helps turn their troubling doubt to joyful disbelief. But the resurrected Christ not only comes bringing grace and peace into a doubting room, but he also comes bringing a resurrected body. How does Jesus calmly, graciously, peacefully calm the doubts and the fears of this flustered group of followers? Verse 38 of chapter 24, look with me. He says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Look at my hands, he says. Look at my feet, he says. Touch my nail-scarred hands and feet and notice that I am not a ghost. I am not a hallucination. I am not an apparition. I am real. Jesus is making an important, important statement here. He will not be relegated to an imaginary space. Some sort of illusory, illusory type of hallucinatory type of uh, space. Jesus is not in that space. Jesus is saying, I am as real as real can get. Touch my feet, touch my hands. I'm hungry. I got something to eat. I'm as real as real can get. And keep in mind that in this state, Jesus ascends, this real, real Christ ascends into heaven in this real state. Not as some ghost, but wrapped in incorruptible, resurrected, divine skin and bone. Jesus, in this very brief moment, is answering a very important question for us. What should we expect in the resurrection of our own bodies? It is not, it's not simply a move from purely physical to some ghostly form. When we think about the resurrection, a lot of us think about just kind of floating off into heaven and, and kind of moving in and out like Casper, the friendly ghost. That's not the image that Jesus is painting for us in the resurrection. He is resurrecting into a new creation. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that, Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And when you hear that, you immediately want to think that it means ghostly. But no, it doesn't. Jesus has had two meals since since we've been reading about the resurrected Savior. Most of us, when we think about life and death, we think about this out-of-body experience when in fact God is doing something quite different. What God is doing in the resurrection isn't something that we can fathom. We can't quantify it. He's moving from life into death into a totally new and different kind of life. We'll be incorruptible, but we'll still be able to enjoy a good Boston Fish supreme two-piece. God is making a new heaven and a new earth out of the present one. And not just not just us and our bodies, but all of creation. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 19, it says creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation waits for the day where the cycle of death is no more. Just life and life and life and life. Christ arriving in his resurrected body gives us a glimpse into what the resurrection for all of us will look like. In this resurrected body, Jesus Christ invites us to come and taste and see What goodness awaits us on the other side? The resurrected Christ also brings, we talked about bringing grace and peace. We talked about bringing his resurrected body, but he also brings fulfillment. Looking again at this final scene, this final scene is a confirmation of the prophets of old. Before Jesus even arrived on earth, his arrival and his his death and his resurrection had been foretold and Jesus came to bring fulfillment through his resurrection he brings fulfillment verse 44 it says then he said to them these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled that he opened their minds then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them thus it is written that the christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead We hear of this promise, this prophecy from the prophets. We hear of it in many places in the Old Testament. One such place is Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, we hear these words beginning at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You read that text, and it sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? However, if you say that, then you must understand, or rather, if you say that thinking that it sounds an awful lot like Jesus because it was so close to Jesus' arrival or time or death, then you would be wrong. Christ most likely died between 30 and 32 AD. Isaiah, on the other hand, was written somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 BC. In other words, we are talking about a prophecy that was fulfilled over 700 years after it was uttered. We can even take this further back, all the way back to the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden where the Lord declares that the seed of a woman will come forth and crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. In other words, the one chosen by God will conquer, but he will conquer through suffering, a prophecy foretold at the very beginning of our fall. The resurrected Christ arrives in the room, and in this moment, he is saying, Peace to you because I am real, but also peace to you because this was all a part of the plan. There was a promise for him to suffer, but there was also a promise for him to rise. Not only did Christ fulfill the prophecies concerning his sufferings, Jesus also went a step further and fulfilled the prophecies concerning his resurrection. Jesus, again, he says in verse 46 that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He says, thus it is written. The finding these prophecies are a little little more difficult. So it makes sense that maybe the, maybe the disciples didn't first, they couldn't first see it. Hence the reason we hear that Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures. In fact, he probably opened their minds to look at Psalm chapter 16 in a brand new way because in fact we see in the book of Acts that the that the apostles refer and reference Psalm 16 to point back to the resurrection. Here's what it says in verse 10 of Chapter 16, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy and at the right hand or at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Initially, the disciples would have looked at a text like this and immediately thought of David. But as their minds have been open to understand the scriptures and see what the prophets were pointing to, then they begin to proclaim that this scripture was referencing Jesus. We hear Peter visit this scripture in his first sermon in Acts after the day, uh, after the day of Pentecost. And we, and, we, and we hear Paul reference this scripture later on in Acts chapter 13. In fact, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption. And then he says this, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In other words, what he's saying is that when David wrote what he wrote in Psalm 16, he possibly didn't even know that this was referencing someone else, not him. He saw corruption, but Christ did not. A text written possibly centuries before Christ showed up is being fulfilled now in his death and in his resurrection. This is where Jesus is vastly different from other religious figures. All of Jesus' claims take place on the stage of history and in the public square. Every claim that he makes and prophecy that is spoken concerning him happens for all the world to see and witness. His miracles are performed for the world to see. He's hung on the cross for the world to see. He's raised from the grave for the world to see. He is a historical savior. These are historical moments. All other religious figures find their beginnings of their faith done in private. In private, they get visions, quote, unquote. However, the prophetic fulfillment of Christ is a historical fulfillment. It is on public display. So the Jesus that shows up on, in, in this room on this night is not an abstract God with a vague testimony only known in secret. He was prophesied about. He was foretold about. And even though very few actually understood him or even fewer believed him, he did exactly what he said that he would do. His death, burial, and resurrection was again all a part of the plan. Saints of God, sometimes the darkness can seem beyond God's reach. Sometimes the darkness can feel hopeless and futile, with no end in sight. In fact, I'm sure that it, that 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 is exactly what was felt on Friday night and Saturday morning for those disciples. But never lose sight of the truth that Sunday was always a part. Of the plan. Fab, no matter how dark our situations may appear, resurrection, new heaven, new earth, new creatures, new creation has been promised by the resurrected Savior. So trust and believe that it will happen. The struggles we experience will not stop His plan for you and I. So he arrives bringing grace and peace, bringing fulfillment, bringing bringing all these beautiful gifts in a room filled with doubt. And lastly, he arrives bringing redemption. Verse 46, he says, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, this is why the resurrection happened. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just a moment for God to flex in the world. But it was a moment indeed for God to save the world. He says that that, that forgiveness of sin, that Christ should suffer, Christ should rise, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in, this, in his name. Forgiveness of sin is stated as a part of this redemptive resurrection plan. You know what's not stated? You know what you don't see? Riches. Rescue from trouble. Situations getting better. Better jobs, better wife, better kids, better dogs. You don't see any of that. You know why? Because that's not the projected picture. That's not what Christ came to save. You understand that? You can have, those things can be troubling. Those things can be hurdles in your life, and that doesn't mean one iota concerning Christ's redemptive plan for you. He came to save you from your sin. You see, saints of God, none of that will send you to hell. You can have a bad job and still go to heaven. You can have a lot of of money, go to hell you can have no money and still be a part of the new heaven and new earth forgiveness of sin is what's stated in fact forgiveness of sin is listed with repentance here Christ's death and resurrection has enabled our repentance to happen it has unlocked us from the bondage of sin You know, what a privilege we have to be forgiven by Christ. But also, never lose sight of the fact of the privilege that you've been given to be free in Christ. The privilege that you've been given to actually wage war against the sin that wages war on your soul. You have power because of the resurrected Savior now. True Christianity doesn't celebrate one without the other. But it doesn't end there. The resurrected Christ, who brings salvation through forgiveness of sin, who brings power for repentance, also sends us with resurrected life and resurrected power. He says that He is sending us. Now you are my witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to, and I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. In other words, I'm sending my spirit. With you. And so the resurrected Christ brings a spirit for us to go in power and be his witnesses. This spirit will guide us and glorify Christ, according to John chapter 16. This spirit will bring us life and refreshing, according to Romans chapter 8. The spirit enables us to change. this Spirit enables us to turn our affections towards Jesus and away from our sin. The Spirit enables a slow but sure sanctifying work in you. The Spirit ensures that you're gonna one day have victory over your sin, complete and total. The Spirit intercedes for you, according to Romans chapter 8, When you're weak, when you're doubting, when you don't even know how to pray, the Spirit is praying on your behalf. The Spirit will embolden us according to the book of Acts and empower us to be witnesses for our Jesus. And the Spirit will seal us, meaning that this Spirit will keep you until the day of redemption according to Ephesians. When the Lord rose from the grave, it wasn't an act done in isolation. It was a signal to all of his followers to go, to tell the world about this resurrection. It was a a signal and a cue to all of his followers to go and make his name known and that his spirit would be with you when you go. His spirit would be with you when you perform your acts of love and kindness towards your neighbor in order to leave those gospel breadcrumbs that we talk about and to help them see Jesus. His spirit would be with you when you lead your Bible study with your neighbor or when you, just show, when you just show kindness and mercy to those that on the surface don't prove or don't seem to be deserving of it and they wonder why in the world would you do that? It's because of the spirit of God in you. His spirit is with you for those very things. This is what the resurrection means. It means that the spirit goes with us as well. So the resurrected Christ, he comes and he arrives into a house filled with despair, bringing hope, bringing grace, bringing peace, bringing fulfillment, and bringing redemption and salvation. This is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. This is what we rejoice over on this morning. Amen. And so one last time I ask and I pray that after we pray, I ask that you would join us in song and, and that you, you would think on all of the, all of the the beauty that is found in this resurrection, what it signifies, what it means. And that you would let that that truth guide you in the coming days and in the coming months and in the coming years, that that your heart would be connected to the resurrection and that that truth would fuel you going forward. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you.